When I was a kid, we went to a, a water park, kind of like Black Water or something like that. And it had a great big wave pool. So we were, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. And we went out as far as we could to where we could touch. And our head and chin was above water. And when the waves would come in, we would jump up, let them carry us back, and then land, and then walk forward again and jump and do it again. And one of those times when I jumped and when I landed, something happened and my feet came up from underneath me. And I went under the water. Uh, and my feet went up and my head went down. And once I was down like that, I, I couldn't get straightened back up. Every time I, I would try to get my feet under me, the waves would hit me and push me back off of them. If I tried to get my head up, another wave would hit me and push me back down. And there was the current of the waves pushing me further and further back. So I never could stop and collect myself and stand up. I mean, I was never really in danger of drowning, I don't think, because if I had ever been able to stand up, I would have been out of the, my face would have been out of the water. But it was still kind of a, a scary feeling as I wasn't in control. I couldn't make myself get up out of that. The current and the force of the waves was keeping me down until I literally, I kind of washed up to where when I rolled over on my back, my face was out. I mean, I just washed me 20 feet or so all the way up to the shoreline of, of the wave pool. And in a lot of ways, I was thinking about that as I studied on the message. In a lot of ways, we as proclaimers of the gospel are standing in a spiritual wave pool. Right? We face wave after wave that is seeking to, to push us away from the gospel, to cause us to drift away from its truth and away from what's right. And, and as we face these waves, if we ever succumb to them, if we ever give in in any way on what's right and what's true and what the gospel is, it pushes us down and we begin to go with the current. And at that point, it is really hard to get our feet back under us again. It is really hard to begin to stand up and be bold and be uh, faithful to what is true and what is right in the gospel. And that's why we have spent three weeks on the idea of standing in the gospel. Because we, we have to stand in the gospel at all times, we have to stand against the waves and resist the current that is seeking to cause us to drift away from the gospel so we don't lead people astray. As I've said every week, I think in the series, the gospel is and must always remain the primary message of the church. Right? As believers, we must explicitly proclaim the gospel. People who hear must intentionally receive the gospel through repentance and faith. And the greatest danger of the church world today, it's not Democrats and it's not Republicans and it's not atheists and liberals. It is believers who would profess faith in Jesus and yet are willing to drift Away from the gospel. For if we get away from the gospel, we lose the saving power of God in our midst. We are nothing more than a moral country club if we lose or redefine the gospel. We must always stand in the gospel. So let's see how to do this for our final message tonight. Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. It's page 879 if you have a pew Bible. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. I'll read all 11 verses, but we're primarily going to be in verses 1 and 2, and then kind of all over the place. Scripture says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which you have received, and wherein you stand. By which you also are saved, if you keep in memory that which I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that 
Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. That He was buried and that He rose again on the third day according to Scripture. That He was seen of Cephas and then of the twelve. And after that He was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, that I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was which was with me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. Title of the message, Standing in the Gospels. Pray. Father, we love you tonight. We praise you for your grace and your goodness, for the opportunity we have how to study your word, the certainty we have about your gospel, that it is true, that it has been revealed to us. We don't have to try to create it or come up with what the message is, that it has been given to us. And Lord, we need you to give us strength that we would stand in the gospel and not fall away, not drift away. Everything in the world around us, Lord, pushes us to drift in one way or another. Lord, sadly, there is much in what would be called the church world today that pushes us to drift in one way or another. But Lord, we want to be faithful proclaimers of the gospel. We do not want to drift. We do not want to waver. We do not want to waffle or give up or sink in cowardice and pull back. God, we want to stand and boldly declare, thus saith the word of God. Help us with that tonight as we look at what we're going to look at. Let us take it to heart. Let it bring the kind of change it needs to bring in our lives. Make us bold for Jesus. Make us bold with the gospel. Give us opportunities as we go throughout our life to talk to people about Jesus and what he means to us and what they can, others can do so they can come to know him and be saved. Fill me with your spirit tonight and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you want said and what you want done. Have your way, we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Again, the, the progression uh, in verses 1 and 2. Paul had preached the gospel. When Paul went to Corinth, he had determined to know nothing among them, save Christ and him crucified. They had received the gospel. After Paul preached the gospel, they had intentionally received it through repentance and faith in Jesus. They were saved through the gospel. But the gospel is necessary in every part of our salvation. Uh, they were standing in the gospel. While they were being tempted by false doctrine and other issues, at this point they were still standing in the gospel. They had not given in uh, to these false doctrines. They had not drifted away. Verse 2, Paul says that they were saved by the gospel as long as they kept it in memory. They, they stayed with it. In other words, they were saved by the gospel if they continued to believe in the gospel. Much like Jesus said, he that perseveres to the end, the same shall be saved. Anyone who does not believe the gospel is not saved. This doesn't matter if they are someone who has never made a profession of faith and they've always lived as a heathen and they don't believe that sort of nonsense. If they don't believe the gospel, they are not saved. At the same time, if someone at one point made a profession of faith, was baptized in a church, but now says they don't believe the gospel, they don't see a need for Jesus, that person is not saved either. Right? You cannot be saved and reject the gospel and reject Jesus at the same time. That's why it's important to stand in the gospel, right? The, the person who just receives the gospel, they must stand in the gospel to be saved by the gospel. But for us who are trying to be fully devoted followers of Jesus, we're seeking to proclaim the gospel to others. We must stand in the gospel because if we do not stand in the gospel, we lead people astray. 
Right? If we drift, if we let the ways of the world cause us to drift from the gospel and we preach another gospel unto someone and they receive it, they are not saved. They, they believe a false gospel. They believe in a false Jesus. They experience a false conversion. And they will still die and go to hell at the end of their life unless they repent and believe in the real gospel. So we must stand in the gospel to faithfully proclaim the gospel. We've talked about this in two ways so far. We said we, we must refuse to take away from the gospel. We can't give in to liberalism. We can't minimize certain doctrines and certain truths of the gospel because they're not politically correct, because our educated and enlightened age can't accept those sort of things. We have to say, this is what the gospel is, this is true, take it or leave it. At the same time, we have to refuse to add to the gospel through legalism. Right? We can't say the gospel is Jesus plus this. That you have to believe in Jesus plus do these things, and then if you do, you're saved. No, the gospel of salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Everything that's done in service to Jesus is not done to be saved, to stay saved, or to earn God's favor. It is done because we are saved. We have been sanctified, and we have received God's favor through Jesus Christ. And then the final one, and probably the most dangerous one of the ways to drift, we must refuse to forget the gospel. And this is practical universalism. Now universalism on its own is a false teaching saying everyone makes it to heaven. This is a part of taking away the gospel through liberalism, which we've already covered. But there is another part of universalism that is far more dangerous than theological uh, universalism. And that is through Practical universalism. Theological universalism believes everyone goes to heaven when they die. Practical universalism lives as though everyone goes to heaven when they die. It is possible to with our mouths profess and even in our hearts believe the genuine biblical gospel and yet live as though the false gospel of universalism is true. And if we accept either form of universalism, whether theological or practical, it will have tragic consequences in the lives of those around us who do not know Jesus. And it's tragic The tragic consequences are it leaves them lost. Right? If I believe in practical or if I become, forget the gospel and succumb to practical universalism, I will live around lost people who do not know Jesus, but I will act as though they are going to heaven. Now, I may come to church and say, yes, everyone must repent. Everyone must believe. But I treat these people as though they are going to make it despite the fact they are clearly not saved. And so what we do is we leave people separated from Jesus. Well, we hope everything is just going to work out in the end. We leave them lost. We leave them hell bound. And often we do it while assuring them in some way or another they're okay. 
They'll make it. They're good to go. And this is true whether we're talking about theological universalism or practical. Practical universalism is danger everywhere. The reality. It is far more dangerous in small towns than it is in other places in the world. It is more dangerous in the Bible Belt than it is anywhere else in America. Listen to what one of my books described the problem in small town America. Small towns tend to be loaded with religious non-Christians. They may not go to church very often, but they generally believe God exists and the Bible probably has something to say about Him. Religious non-Christians are generally receptive to talking about God in church, but it's fair to say they're also inoculated against the gospel. When a person is inoculated, they receive a vaccine that is a weak strain of the virus. The body's immune system then proceeds to adapt so that when it comes in contact with the real strain of the virus, it can easily fight it off. Similarly, religious non-Christians have received a weak strain of the gospel. And consequently, they built up an immunity to the real gospel. That's why conversations with them about the gospel and faith often end with them nodding their heads in agreement with everything you say, even though they truly do not understand what you're talking about. Religious non-Christians also tend to have a high regard for the Bible. That's why they're generally not freaked out by the opening of the Bible at church and they, uh, or in a small group or talking about it casually. However, even though they say they have a high regard for the Bible, the vast majority of them don't know what it says because they've rarely studied it for themselves. Now that, what he's talking about there, that's what's called, what we call it mostly cultural Christianity. But cultural Christianity, uh, a cultural Christian is someone who has made a profession of faith in Jesus at some point in their life. But this profession has no real impact on the way they live their lives. Now, this doesn't mean they live in terrible sin. They might, but they don't have to. They may well lead moral lives. But what they are is like the people in Psalm chapter 10, where it says that God is in none of their thoughts. Right, And so what this means is, their profession of faith in Jesus, it does not influence their values. Their values are their values. The Bible and God and Jesus has nothing to do with that. Their faith in Jesus, the professed faith in Jesus, has no influence, no impact on their priorities in life. Right? What's important to them is not shaped by Scripture, by Jesus, or by what God has said. How they act in life is not shaped by Scripture, by Jesus, by what God has said. Their profession of faith has no influence on how they act. That's why they can live in sin. That's why they will live in things and do things the Bible says are clearly not wrong. And they feel no guilt. They feel no shame. They feel no conviction from the Holy Spirit by it. They feel, they also, their profession of faith, it does not influence their reactions. A a cultural Christian reacts to stressors in exactly the same way a non-Christian does. And again, even though there is a vast difference in how they react and how Scripture says a believer should react, they feel no bother by it. Everybody, I mean, they have these reasons why it's okay. 
their professed faith in Jesus has no influence on their speech. They, they lie just as much as an unbeliever. They cuss just as much as an unbeliever. They are just as... Whatever their speech is no different than that of someone who does not know Jesus. And there's no, no area of their life that is influenced by their professed faith in Jesus. God is in none of their thoughts. Cultural Christians probably attend church occasionally. They probably even attend more than what we often call the Christmas and Easter crowd. You know, Easter is always a big Sunday naturally. Right before Christmas, it's often a bigger Sunday. Cultural Christians probably attend more than them, but church is not important to them. Now, a cultural Christian would almost certainly never say church is not important to them. But their lives... Their lives demonstrate what their mouths would never say. Their lives teach church is not important to them. They bank heavily on their past profession of faith or their past baptism. Like the church in Sardis, they rely on what happened at some point in the past and they completely ignore what's going on in the present. Cultural Christians would claim a respect for Scripture despite not reading it or obeying it. Not only do they not read it or obey it, they feel no obligation to read it or obey it. It's a good book. Everybody ought to read it. Now, I don't, but it's, I think you've got to kind of read through it sometimes and figure out what it means to you. And, and you, I mean, everybody needs a Bible. We don't want the Koran and we don't want... Whatever the Buddhist book is, we everybody needs a Bible. Now, I'm not going to read it. Look. I got one right here. But I... Have you ever read it? I don't know. I, mean, I can't remember. Crack it and it's like... Because it's a brand new book, never been opened. For the cultural Christian, the concept of being radically transformed by Jesus is a foreign concept. And if you were to press them on it and talk about the change Jesus is meant to make in our lives, they would probably, out of ignorance, call that legalism. Cultural Christians see no problem with the fact their past profession of faith has no impact on their current life. After all, they would say, doesn't Scripture teach that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord is saved? And I call on the name of the Lord, therefore I must be saved. The problem with cultural Christians, one of the problems, is they pick and choose what parts of the Scripture to emphasize. For instance, Romans 10.13 does say, All who call upon the Lord shall be saved. But Scripture also says, Those who have called on the name of the Lord are made into brand new people, new creations. The old way, is past, the old way of life is past, and all things have become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Scripture also says a part of being a new creation is we have new desires and we live differently than we did before. 1 Peter 2, 1-3 Those who have called upon the name of the Lord are to be holy because their God is holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 Those who have Called upon the name of the Lord are to be obedient to God and not live the way they did before they were saved. First, First Peter 1, 
and 14. And those who called upon the name of the Lord must deny themselves. Take up their crosses. Follow Jesus. Luke 9 and 23. Now we have to know all this about what cultural Christianity is. And we have to understand the error of cultural Christianity. Or as that author said, religious non-Christians. Because that makes up a huge portion of our community. Right? I mean, when we talk about a lot of things, a lot of that stuff really is way out there somewhere. But cultural Christianity, I mean, it's largely, it's not found in New York City. It's not found in Austin, Texas. It's not found in L.A. Those are very irreligious places. Anybody there that makes a profession of faith in Jesus, it's typically very real. They haven't been raised to go to church. They don't have a church, well, that's my grandma's church, and so if I were to go, I would go there. But in in the Bible Belt, in Oklahoma, in Guyman, cultural Christianity abounds. Every one of us in here tonight, we know people who are religious non-Christians. Every one of us in here tonight are almost certainly related to people who are religious non-Christians. And that's the key. Right? It's not that they're not where they ought to be. They're non-Christians. Cultural Christians are not genuinely saved. They are the people Jesus was talking about when He said that they will say, Lord, Lord, we did all of these things and He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. There's the danger of cultural Christianity. It gives people a sense of salvation, but it leaves them damned. And us, we have to know that. We have to know that if someone has made a profession of faith when they were five and now they're 55 and they have never lived for Jesus a moment in their lives, they're not saved. That profession of faith is as worthless as the email from the Nigerian prince promising $10 million. It means nothing. And if we forget the gospel... We embrace practical universalism. We let them live among us. We let them live next to us. We affirm them. And we condemn them to hell. We must not allow ourselves to be carried downstream to practical universalism. There are several things we have to remember to keep from doing this. Remember the reality of hell. Hell is by no means a pleasant subject. But hell is real. Hell is not only real, but people really do go there. Familiar story. It came to pass, the beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus. In his bosom. Something to keep in mind. There's a lot to keep in mind about this familiar passage. The rich man is not really portrayed as a bad guy. It doesn't portray him as a dirty, rotten, wicked sinner. It doesn't portray him as an adulterer, as a murderer, as an extortioner. 
It doesn't portray him as one who worshipped Baal or one who was involved in the pagan worship of the Greeks and the Romans. Instead, it just paints him as a rich guy who can't be bothered really with God or with people for that matter. He has so much, he doesn't see the need to be devoted to God. This man in the story is a a Jewish version of the Laodiceans from Revelation 3. He was someone whose wealth caused him to feel self-sufficient and see very little need from God. Now, the story, we're supposed to see he was Jewish, right? I mean, he's not a Greek, he's not a Roman. He is a, a Jewish man. So most likely, God is at least nominally a part of his life. I mean, the Jews who worshipped Baal were very rare at this time. He was a cultural Jew, like a cultural Christian. He was a religious non-Jew. Jew. How different is this rich man or the folks of Laodicea from the average American? the average person we know in Diamond, Oklahoma. Now we may not be as rich as the rich man was. We may not be as rich as we'd like to be. But by and large as Americans we have enough. Enough to eat. Enough for nice clothes. Enough for good food. In fact, most Americans have so much they see little need for God in their lives. I mean, in the Lord's Prayer, give me this day our daily bread. Now, in the Jewish culture, that was a real thing. They needed daily provision to get to eat. We don't. I mean, do you think about that? That if God doesn't do something today, I'm not going to have any food? I mean, we just have whole closets filled with food. Freezers full of it. What do we need God for? And I think that's the way most people see. At best, God is nominally a part of their lives and little more. Cultural Christianity is the most common religion in America, particularly in rural America in the Bible Belt. Part of what this story teaches is people really do go to hell. And since this rich man wasn't especially wicked or evil, it's good to replace him with someone we may know. Because it's bad to think about a nameless, faceless person dying and going to hell and being there into this day in, in torments. But the story takes on a whole new meaning when we replace the rich man with our co-worker James, our next door neighbor Kimberly, our cousin Frank, our Aunt Susie, our brother Ralph. And we begin to see that is the fate of the cultural Christians we know. The people around us who have a profession in the past, but nothing in the present. This is them. This is where they are going to end up. Because as horrific as it is to imagine someone you don't know dying and going to hell. It is a whole new ball game to imagine someone you do know. Someone you do love. Dying and going to hell. We have to refuse to forget the gospel through practical universalism. 
One of the ways we do this is by reminding ourselves the reality of hell. Secondly, remember the brevity and uncertainty of life. I mean, if there's anything these last two weeks have taught us, it is life is short and life is uncertain. Scripture reminds us of this. Go to now ye that say today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow. For it is your life, it is a vapor that appeareth for a time and then vanisheth away. Often we skip opportunities for talking to people we, we know, we love, talking to them about Jesus. By convincing ourselves we'll have another time, another opportunity later. The reality is we don't always have that. What do we know? We don't know what will happen. One of my heroes, the faith, D.L. Moody, preached in the Moody Church in Chicago, October 1871. And he didn't give an invitation that night. Instead, he said this, go home and consider this week what to do with Christ. Next week, come back and tell me what you have decided. And that night the Chicago fire broke out and that group of people never gathered again. Many of the people who heard the gospel that night never saw the next sunrise. According to those who know about Mr. Moody, he said after that experience, Moody never concluded a sermon without giving people an opportunity to make a decision for Christ. He never offered them an opportunity to procrastinate in their response To God's word. Life teaches us. People can be fine one day. And gone the next. We have no guarantee. This elusive next opportunity. Will ever really exist. And and I can tell you. More than stories of Moody. I could tell you about my cousin Rob. Who heard a story at church. When he was really giving his life. And trying to live for Jesus. Heard a story about sharing the gospel. And. Lives way out in the middle of the country and is pretty much only ever around his family and thought to himself as he left the church, I don't really know anybody, I don't think. And as he was driving home, a fella from, we couldn't call it a neighborhood, but a fella in their little area of the world walking down the street. He said, I don't think he knows Jesus. I ought to pull over and talk to him. But he didn't. He said, I'll, I'll talk to him later. I've got to get home for lunch. I'm running late. He's walking for exercise. It's sitting a good time. And then that guy died in his sleep that night. He told me months and months later that haunted him. He missed that opportunity. I could tell you about me going to visit a guy in the hospital in Oklahoma City. And it was the day that Lizzie was supposed to come home from the NICU. And because of the way things were and because of the rush we were in. And I knew, I knew he was in bad health. And I knew things were not as they should be probably with him. I still didn't do it because... It would have been an awkward conversation. And, and we were really rushed for time because we needed to get Lizzie home. And, and I didn't. I thought, I'll do it again. I'll see James again. And James didn't get out of the hospital. I mean, there are just story after story. And we have to remember the, the brevity and uncertainty of life. 
They have to refuse to forget the gospel through practical universalism and remind ourselves the brevity and the uncertainty of life. We must remember that everyone must be born again. The only people who will avoid the judgment of God and the horrors of hell are those who are born again. Story of Nicodemus. Ruler of the Jews came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we don't think in terms of the kingdom of God. We think about heaven or being saved. For Nicodemus, the idea that he had to be born again to be a part of God's kingdom would have been a strange thing. Because as a Jew, he understood he was born, naturally born, as a part of the kingdom of God, just by virtue of being Jewish. Jesus said, not so. You must be born again. If we talked about this in in our context, Jesus might say, no one is saved without being born again. No one goes to heaven without being born again. Again, no one escapes the judgment of God, the the horrors of hell, without being born again. Now, when we look at Nicodemus, we know what we know about him. This is a really challenging passage, right? So, what we learn is, being religious doesn't save. Right? Nicodemus was a very religious guy. He was a Pharisee, and we don't have time to get into all that meant. But he was a very religious guy. And despite being religious, Jesus led with, you must be born again. Something to understand is, Nicodemus wasn't religious in the wrong religion. He's not a a devout, faithful follower of Baal. He's not a devout, religious follower of Zeus. He's a Jew devoted to Judaism, making the sacrifices demanded by the law, doing the the, the tithing and all of those things. And despite how religious he is, he is still told, you must be born again. You know, when you talk to people and ask them if they're saved, you'll get answers like, well, I go to church. Or I, I went to the altar once. Or I was baptized. I'm a member of this church. I'm a very spiritual person. And what they're all saying is in their same way, or in their, what they're all saying, what they're actually saying it is, in my own way, I'm religious. And the problem is being religious doesn't save. You must be born again. Being moral doesn't save. As a Pharisee, Nicodemus would have been a moral person as a natural outflow of Judaism. You know, Judaism expected husbands to be faithful to their wives, expected the dads to train up their children. He was expected to be a good neighbor. He was expected to help the poor And for Nicodemus to be what he was, he he would have had to have done that. So he was, by all outward appearances, a good moral man, and yet he was still. He had to be born again. And we know good moral people, the folks that are good neighbors, that we trust them to pick up our mail, we give them a key to the house to come and feed our animals and take care of them. They pay their taxes, they're good parents, they're faithful to their spouses, they work hard on their jobs, they're just 
all around good people. They, they may not have even ever sowed their wild oats and done a lot of the things other people have. The problem with people like that is they don't see their need for Jesus and the salvation he offers. They're good just like they are. They're very satisfied with who they are. As far as they're concerned, they're every bit as good as most church folks they know. And while being moral is good, and certainly our world could use more of that, being moral is not enough. Being moral doesn't save. You must be born again. Being knowledgeable of Scripture doesn't save. In verse 10, Jesus will say that Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. Being a teacher of the law in that time was a big deal. There were some serious qualifications you had to meet before you could teach the law in the synagogue. From my understanding, Pharisees had to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Now, not like I remember here, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. No, they had to memorize the book of Genesis from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Genesis. They had to be able to quote all of Genesis, all of Exodus, all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, all of Deuteronomy. Man, how knowledgeable were these guys of Scripture? They were the Bible scholars of the day. Despite all the Bible he knew, Nicodemus still was told he must be born again. Many times, those who are the religiously lost cultural Christians, they've been raised in church and they went to Sunday school. Maybe they went to a Christian school. And they have Bible knowledge. I can tell you the books of the Bible in order. They can quote the Ten Commandments. They can answer doctrinal drills. How many gods are there? What's, the, what's this one God in three called? They can answer those sort of doctrinal questions. And while it's good to know the Bible, Bible knowledge doesn't save. They must be born again. Every person, no matter who they are, no matter how moral they are, no matter how religious they are, no, much, no matter how much of the Bible they can quote or how much they know, they must be born again. We must refuse to forget the gospel through practical universalism by reminding ourselves everyone, everyone must be born again. And then finally, remember people must hear the gospel. This is a lot of ways where the rubber meets the road. Because people are never saved by seeing how we live. People are never saved because we're kind and we're nice and we set a good example. They are saved as they hear the gospel and are given a chance to respond to the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. There's nothing else. I hope. Well, and I know. I say I hope we live good lives. I know we do. When I talk to people in the community. And they find out what church I'm a pastor of. Almost always they know someone in our church. And, and in almost 18 years. It has never been bad 
as far as their Christianity goes. Now, that may have been a personal issue, but as far as whether they were good Christians or not, that I have never heard anything bad about anybody in our church like that. So, I know our church people, we live our devotion to Jesus out in public and people see it and they recognize it. That's not enough. Them knowing we're at church on a cold Wednesday night will not save them. They will only be saved as they hear the gospel and are called upon to repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Our example, it gives credibility to our words. That's it. It does not replace verbally sharing the gospel. Every one of us works with, lives by, or in some way has contact with people who do not know Jesus. And if we, if we will not proclaim the gospel to them, who will? If I won't tell those I know who is going to, the reality is probably no one. Probably no one. And how, how sad, utterly tragic to think that people will live in this community, all these churches. I know all of these people who are truly devoted to Jesus. And they will die and go to hell. Because they never heard the gospel. No one ever talked to them and told them the truth of who Jesus was. And what Jesus came to do. You know if they hear and reject. That's one thing. To never get to hear it. And it's easy for us to say everybody's heard. But that's not the case. Now I remember in, when Scott and him owned the store. Talking with a guy in there. He had no idea who that Jesus guy was or what he did. And that was, that was years ago. How, how much more godless is our culture now than it was then? More than likely the people we know. Most of them. Truly have never had anyone just sit down with them. And go. They just don't know. And if we won't tell them. Probably no one else will. Either. And then they will die. And they will go to hell. Because they never heard. Refuse. To forget the gospel through practical universalism. By constantly reminding yourself. People must hear the gospel in order to believe the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And we come tonight and we do surrender our lives to you. Lord, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you to be fishers of men. Help us all to understand that a part of following Jesus is being a fisher of men. Lay a burden on our hearts to talk to people about Jesus. 
Give us the courage to reject practical universalism. To remember the things we need to remember. Be bold. Bold. Explicitly proclaiming the gospel. Give us opportunities this week and next week and every week after. Let us be bold and courageous to take them. Let us see souls saved and lives changed. The power of your gospel we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.